Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with my new acquaintance slash friend and colleague, Glenn Stasiuk. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Glenn? Uh, you can call me whatever you want. Uh, Stasiuk <laughs> is the actual, okay, yeah, apologies. Ukrainian pronunciation. Okay, Glenn Stasiuk. And Glenn, uh, you're a filmmaker uh, here at Murdoch University in Perth more generally, and your production company is, if I'm remembering correctly, called Black Russian Productions. Black Russian Productions. Which Can you is, tell us the, the story? Yeah, it's a combination of um, and, a, and a respect to both my cultural heritages, which is Ukrainian-Russian, the, the, obviously, I'm on my father's side, and grandfather's Ukrainian, Nana was Russian, and on my mum's side, we have Noongar Irish. Uh-huh. So, um, Can you explain Noongar because most people here won't be from Australia? No worries. Well, Noongar is the um, Aboriginal peoples of the southwest of Western Australia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, culture going back 40,000, 50,000 years. Um, some people say sort of dying out, but it's incorrect. Uh, the next census, which we're about to have, will be interesting to see what the numbers are. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, no, we, we were able to, as a Noongar people, and, and I, you know, I um, proclaim my Aboriginality quite proudly. Mm. Uh, as a Noongar people, we were able to get native title through the state government um, because we were able to prove um, coexistence of um, of our culture with you know, colonisation and settlement and certainly still um, part of the country, still mm. living on country, still using our language, still using our cultural protocols, um, both metropolitan and in the you know, rural um, country southwest. So mm. Noongar people have been around for thousands of generations and um, very proud to um, pay respect to my mum's side, my, my matriarchal family through that and Black mm. Russian Productions. Right. And in terms of the kind of work you do, do those two elements of your heritage have an interplay? I've only ever really um, done a journal article, I think a chapter of a book, I should say, on multiculturalism, mm-hmm. um, 175th anniversary of settlement of WA, so it was a couple of years ago now. And um, I did something on my dad, um, you know, who came over as a migrant in in forty nine fifty, mm. and he mm. at the time was um, persecuted quite a bit in the playgrounds because of the food he ate, the last name, um, you know, just the, the general look. He he was obviously broken English, mm-hmm. um, was mm-hmm. trying to learn English, um, and he actually. Um, Became good friends with who became my uncle. He married into the family, but he's Yamaji Nunga, and oh. they they were in a fight together on the playground um, back to back because one was being called a racist name for being black or dark skinned, right. being a Nunga Yamaji, and my dad was being called a racist name for being a migrant or someone from you know uh, Europe. And um, yeah, they both got together and helped each other out and were friends forever. And then my, he married into the family. He married my auntie and. My dad married my mum and um, they, they were friends from time they were in primary school. Now, this raises an interesting question because, as I was intimating, a lot of listeners are from outside Australia yeah. and they won't realise, probably, that coming from Europe and being white, in inverted commas, would have meant in quite intense prejudice in those days yeah, the, from, from Anglo-Protestant and Anglo-Irish yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. The, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant was the core values of Australia back mm. in the 50s and was called the white Australia policy. Right. So Aboriginal mm. people were obviously um, shunted and um, sort of neglected, yeah. weren't, weren't allowed into town after 6 o'clock. Were Perth, not citizens. Weren't citizens, class of citizens, um, you know, weren't allowed to enrol to 
be part of the defence force or had to lie about their Aboriginality. So all of that went on yeah. from obviously my mum's and as it was my, my uncle who married into the family. And then dad w- was, um, yeah, white-skinned mm. but couldn't speak English. So, mm. you know, came from the Polish, um, Italian, Greeks, um, Russian, Ukrainians, Slavs, anyone from that Slavic European background because mm. of war-torn Europe and Russia, obviously. Mm. They were shunted as well and um, mm. called all sorts of racist names. And um, Dad changed the name. From, well, he changed the pronunciation of the name from Stashuk, yeah. which is its traditional Ukrainian pronunciation, to Stashik. So a lot of things were – and his name's Palo, but he changed it to Paul. His uh-huh. sister was Anna. She changed it to Tanya. Uh, my other uncle was uh, Vazul, changed it to Vasha. Um, uh, Mikhail to Michael. So they all did it to try and become more Australian. Mm. Um, and, you know – they obviously um, were sort of uh, proud to become to this country and they only knew Australia really because they were born either on the boat as dad was or born as you know, two or three they came over. So that's fine but I did one thing for granddad. He asked me, he said, our name is Stashuk and mm. I've done that the last uh, 10 years, last decade. I've given it back to as a form of respect to him. So I've only ever written about my Russian ancestry sort of the once Mm. But I have done that as a pay, pay of respect about the name of Black Russian Productions. But most of my work, um, both academically and filmically, um, particularly documentaries, is in Noongar Aboriginal culture and heritage and history. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the films, which are also quite academic, by the way, for listeners? Uh, I don't want to draw a hard and fast distinction there. And then, of course, your scholarly work and also what you're planning for the future. And there are a number of these films. They're prize-winning. I've been fortunate enough to see them. Perhaps you could just run through for people some of the themes that you address in them. And also, if I'm not sure if some of them are on the web or not, but how people in other countries might be able to gain access. Yeah, um, I pretty much did quite a few films in my student days here. I had a Bachelor of Business and then came here and they wanted me to do a postgrad in 96 when I started working, so I've been here 21 years Have you um, really? at Murdoch yeah. and um, with the Aboriginal Education Unit, which became the Coolbardi Aboriginal Centre. But I didn't want to do a post-grade business. I was interested at that time, um, film and sound, uh, radio, music, mm-hmm. and so I started to do um, a Bachelor of Arts in media or screen, if you like, and I was looking at two different things, drama, just traditional drama, and then doco, small ones, and they were always based or they seemed to sort of focus on Aboriginal issues, particularly Noongar, given mm. we're living here in Wajak Noongar and my family come from strong Noongar background. So that's basically what my second degree was. And then when I was asked to do my honours, um, I had a few choices, but I found an article. This is how it all started for me in a way. Mm-hmm. I found an article called Noongar Men at War. And it was only a two-page article about Noongar Men at War and it had a picture of um, and my family descendants of farmers. There's a farmer freeway here. He was a very famous footballer. Polly, Polly Farmer. He's my descendant, oh, my really? cousin. It's my nana's first cousin. Oh, he yeah. was, uh, I spent some of my childhood in Australia, I guess the most famous Australian rules footballer of his day. Of his day and changed the game and still one of the most renowned top yeah. ten probably yeah. of all time. He's still alive, very sick. Um, and him and nana are first cousins. So to me, Noongar, he's an uncle. Right. Conk. So I just saw this article. We had a, the name Farmer. Augustus Pegg Farmer, and I didn't overly know who it was, but I knew it was probably my family because he was a um, soldier in World War One who never came back. And there were others from World War Two, and I started reading this article, very quick article um, written by Neville Green, who's a great historian. And I thought I've got to find more about mm. and about this. Mm-hmm. And I went and saw Mum, and she said, "Look, I know about it, but the best person to ask is your Nana, because she knows the two uncles that came back. She 
stayed with them and lived with them and she knows the story better than I do and she knows it firsthand. And primary research is always better than secondary. So I went off to talk to my nan, my Nunga nan, and she said, yeah, yeah, the four brothers, you know, my, my uncles, all went off to, um, to war. Two never came back, Augustus being one, and he mm. was a military medal winner. And I thought, that's significant. Mm. So he was killed in Europe uh, near La Hamel, Villa mm-hmm. Bretno in the Somme. And his other brother who went to Gallipoli and then survived Gallipoli, went through to Europe, also passed away. Uh, got killed in action. He never was found because there was um, uh, Yeep, I think, or somewhere on mm-hmm. the Belgian Western Front, and um, two brothers. But there was four Noongar brothers, even though not classed as citizens, even though they... And having to pretend they were not Indigenous. Well, they had to or, sort of... They were lucky in that they knew the people who were recruiting because they were very hard workers in that town. Uh-huh. And their father was um, a Wadjala who was very respected, and their mother was as well because she was a nurse... Um, sort of assistant. She birthed a lot of kids in Katanning. Mm. So they were straight away given permission to mm. enrol. But a lot of Aboriginal um, people, particularly say in the Noongar region, had to keep moving toward different stations to mm. find someone that was sympathetic mm. or lie about their Aboriginality. So this story all had that in very quickly mm. and had Augustus and four brothers and a fifth one went to World War Two. That's five from the same family who have contributed to the defence mm. of Australia in two of the biggest world, you know, the two world wars. And I was absolutely godsmacked because I thought, well, I need to know this as a descendant, but other people should know this. And I asked my nan, do our mob, meaning our family, know? She said, oh, a couple. And I said, that's not good enough. Mm. I'm going to do something about this. So I did a film called The Forgotten for my honours, which was a documentary um, about Aboriginal um, soldiers in the defence of the nation, particularly starting from uh, Boer War, uh, Constitution, 1901, um, and not being obviously recognised in the Constitution, which we're still dealing with. Australia becomes, which was a set of colonies named after each state, becomes an independent nation on January the 1st, 1901, Federation, which is what Glenn's referring to. Pardon, yeah. I only dropped every now and then just no, to clarify right. something. And, and, yeah. and obviously it's sort of, and I call it the parallel theory, is that mm-hmm. there was all this legislation happening and that was a formal legislation, obviously, and at the same time, Boer War. Yeah. So it seemed to be where things were happening in Australia, the, the wars were coinciding. So um, there was um, some research done by myself and other researchers as well um, who were a bit older, a bit more established, and it was established that, yes, there was an Aboriginal West Australian, a Noongar, who served um, as a tracker in the Boer War. So the Aboriginal um, contribution has gone from 1901, and this was 2001. So it was 100 years, 100 years. and all that sort of 100-year um, significance. So I started to do the research and decided the documentary was the way to go, mm-hmm. and it was my honours, and, and I did it up, and I did run out of money. I had this um, Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies funded it, small grant, but enough for me to get started. Run out of money and time, but got a 40-minute doco out of it, um, which isn't on YouTube. Uh, bits of it may be soon, um, but if people really want to, they can contact me through Murdoch and have a look mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. And it was a doco that won Best Documentary for that year at the West Australian Screen Awards. And then I went overseas and did a tour for the Native American Indians, the Parallels, mm-hmm. um, and obviously worked with Department of Veterans Affairs, um, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, Veterans Association, um, the uh, Australian War Memorial. So I started to really establish um, national archives. Mm. I started to really establish my research career and my film career, both together, together and as also, an honours. And it's amazing because honours is something done not necessarily, it's only for high-achieving students at, at the end of the undergraduate degree. 
Also, of course, you had another and perhaps more important audience, which was your own family members who did not know much of this history, it seems. And that's how I sort of embedded the film. And, and I think I tell, I lecture here at Murdoch about film and documentary and screen. I say to students, the easiest way to start projects, regardless of whether it's short, long form, um, doco or, or narrative or fiction, um, passion. Mm-hmm. And it was a passion of mine because I wanted to know more mm-hmm. and I wanted to give it to mm-hmm. my family. I didn't have children at the time, but I wanted to think I could be leaving a legacy to them and to other Noongars. But the big thing was it wasn't just the Aboriginal community who jumped on it straight away mm-hmm. and my family who were mm-hmm. spellbound by it all. I, I, I met or I, I was able to gain a massive non-Indigenous audience who wanted to know more, who didn't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. You know, who, mm-hmm. we, we sort of knew in our in our family and we sort of knew as an Aboriginal, you know, uh, mob um, in the southwest and across the nation or across the state as I was doing my research, yes, you know, it wasn't the facts weren't exactly clear, but, yeah, yeah, blackfellas enlisted, were treated great while they enlisted, died sometimes, come back fortunately, but then was treated ill. Everyone knew that as a narrative. Yeah. But it was the non-Aboriginal public who basically, which is the majority, who said, wow, did not know Aboriginal served, A, wanted to, B, and did so well, C. You know, it was all of that. And yeah. the film did immensely well. It was shown on ABC, which is... Um, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the national public service broadcaster, probably really the most popular media institution in Australia. Yeah, and say. It continues to be for docos particularly. Yeah, and my doco, key destination. Yeah, my doco rated absolutely... Through the roof, and what I was so proud of is I was able to embed that story of the Farmer Brothers, mm. the four of them particularly. I wasn't able to get a lot of information on the fifth member, but the four who went had an auntie alive at the time, and she was the sister. So she was able to hand, give yeah. me um, yeah. at least yeah. um, pictures, or I was able to shoot uh, the medals. She had the medals, the war records, um, the scroll from the king, who would have been the king at the time, and I was able to go to National Archives and get all of their dossiers. So I was able to formulate a small narrative story mm. for a section of the film, which was a proud bit for me to give back to the family. And I interviewed my nana and my auntie um, about more so that, their uncles, but their own father, my great-grandfather, mm. he didn't lie, but he never told the full truth. He went away during World War II um, to serve um, at the prison of war camps or to, to serve as a, as, a, as a guard, a national guard. Um, because he kept coming back and the girls kept saying, how did you get this um, stockings and how did you get the chocolate? You know, And he would say, oh, just someone I know. <laughs> Fell the, off the back of a truck. Yeah, because he was in the abattoirs <laughs> or he was in the railways and you know, he was always <laughs> travelling. And it was that he was actually going up and he was bombed in Broome. He served Which is over, in northern Western Australia. Yeah, it was bombed by the Japanese and Darwin was extensively and Broome was. Um, but he served out of Kalgoorlie for the uh, intern camps for, I think, Germans and Italians. He did a bit of Wajamup or Rottnest Island um, with the same group and he went up to Broome and mm. to, I don't know about Darwin, but Broome, he definitely was bombed. Um, yeah, he never got anything. He just did it for his sort of patriotic duty, yeah. if you like. And I know that sounds a bit cliched or sort of um, ironic, but he did it um, and um, they were proud of that and also mm. a lot of Aboriginal mm-hmm. people did stuff that was not recognised, wasn't paid, but still contributed to the defence. Mm. So that's where the film was and it still sells today. It's profitable, which is amazing for a short film, you know, film from Perth, if you like, um, and uh, it's probably the film that brought me to acclaim, if you like, mm. and it was honours. And I was fellow Victorian and delivered the speech that year and 
had a you know premiers here and uh, ministers turned up and uh, Aboriginal veterans and crying and family and I was just so proud. So that gave me not only the impetus but I think the not even the courage if you like. I, I thought I can do this and I'm reasonably good at it. Um, and I think the niche just was there, Aboriginal Noongar stories. So I felt like I was culturally being a, a storyteller, if you like, which has right. gone back thousands of generations. And you mentioned Rottnest Island, which I'm putting in inverted commas, which people may have heard of, which has been thought of by white folks as a summer playground for them, just off the coast of Perth where we are here. You've made a significant contribution about that. Maybe we, and you just mentioned it. Maybe we could jump onto that and you could name it properly and contextualise its history for people. Yeah, but so that was my honours. And then obviously after, if you get a high enough honours at this level, you don't have to worry about masters. They invite you straight into a PhD, mm. which is the next step. So it just seemed um, like a natural progression to do that. And then again, it comes up, what do you want to do? Mm. There's a lot of ideas. You're a storyteller, you have a lot of ideas. But the one that kept coming up and it was something I did earlier I did in 2006 a short film based on the first Noongar tried under white law for killing a Noongar man and he was given life sentence um, I think they were going to hang him but then they gave him a life sentence to Wajima which is Rottnest Island so it's the Noongar word for Rottnest Island our mainland used to be attached it's sort of not a well-known thing because of the last glacial period uh, 7,000 years ago. So Wajimup is the Noongar word for a place across the river. It was a high point. And then when the um, seas rose through the, the global warming of that time or the, the last of the Ice Age, um, it obviously separated and is now an island. But it's always been a Noongar place of significance cosmologically. So we all sort of know this, but we also know that it's a place of despair Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really from its colonial context, which is its most recent, obviously, because 4,000 Aboriginal men from all around the state, Noongar first and then moving up through the Kimberley, very, very iconic um, uh, leaders and um, you know, respected lawmen of their tribes um, were placed onto Rottnest um, across, as we say, 18 kilometres off the coast of Fremantle um, over about a 100-year period, 90-100-year period. And out of that 4,000 or near 4,000 men, uh, near 400 never, they died on the island through um, illness mainly, uh, influenza, measles. Some were hung, up to five were hung on the island um, as a, a pay sort of retribution and to really scare the mob coming off the island back to their tribes and a couple drowned trying to escape and, um, you know, uh, accidents on the island. But near 400 are buried on that island and it was covered up in a way. Uh, Mm. It was sort of something that was never, there was no graves. Um, They were put into three by, you know, three sort of feet deep, four feet deep graves and all buried in, you know, when they died. And they had 186 die in one winter. And they were just all put into trenches and buried over. And then what happened is the intern camp, which I talked about before, mm-hmm. which my grandfather went over there, whether he knew or not, because there's no record of this. There's only a record kept by the colonists through the state, but not to the public. Um, and then it became a, an A-class reserve. So people would go over there and sort of the, the elites of Perth at the time in the early 20th century would go over there and holiday. And then it became the intern camps for World War One the intern camps for World War II, right over that grave. They were camping on there. And then they decided it was going to be a magical place from about the 50s or 60s for public to go and, you know, those who could afford to get a ferry across or a boat, their own boat across if they could, to to camp. And then they opened it to the public once it became more of a a tourist mecca. 
in the 80s, 70s, 80s, mainly 80s, um, and it was called Tentland. So people would take their tent own land. tent land. People would take their own tents, uh, unawares they were camping right on top. On a burial ground. On a burial ground of up to 400 Aboriginal men who were lawmen. You know, they, were, they were initiated um, senior lawmen, particularly from up, some from Noongar, but particularly from Wangatha, which is the goldfields, and up in the Kimberley. So these men were men who had really hadn't had their um, culture yet you know, diluted through um, mixed marriage and certainly were still sustaining at that time um, really hardcore Aboriginal um, cultural protocols and mm-hmm. initiations. Mm-hmm. They knew all the law and they knew all the song lines and they knew a lot of others and they were, yeah, arrested. What for? Um, their children were being taken away um, or, or there was, uh, you know, obviously a... Um, a frontier happening with um, pastoralists. So they were obviously trying to say, you're not coming onto our land. So it was a resistance. They were trying to take the children away if they had um, a mixed, um, and it did happen occasionally, a mixed blood. Um, they resisted that. They had obviously survived. So they were taking cattle and bullocks and um, sheep to some degree, and they were being arrested or flour. So you get around, uh, I think it was two years for flour. Anything minor was two years at Wajamup and up to seven for the stealing of a sheep. And then obviously anything that was criminal, you know, a, a theft uh, or, or a burglary or, or a violent theft, I should say, or, or a murder or a manslaughter mm. or a violent um, uh, resistance, they were given life. And, Glenn, I first went there in the year that I moved to Perth, 1986. Yeah. I didn't know any of this history. And then I left Perth and I didn't come back for a very long time and I didn't have enough money to be one of these white freeloaders but when I did have enough money which was a couple of years ago and I went back suddenly the prison that this had been and the burial ground this had been were if not highlighted at least made visible to me as a white person visiting something very dramatic happened in that quarter of a century didn't it yeah I'll tell you what happened and it happened right across um, the nation it was 1988 the, the bicentenary. bicentenary of the settlement of Australia by the British, the, that, co- the claimed colonisation. Yeah, for the first time, um, and it was coming off that self-determination phase of Aboriginality or Aboriginal culture in the 70s, which was using mainly art to some degree sport. And then in the 80s, um, academia started to come into that vernacular. And then, the, you know, the, the, the true resistance sort of, you know, they were... Took hold. My yeah. feeling was that the bicentenary, which was planned as a celebration of whiteness was an incredible symbolic victory for Aboriginality. Yep. Yep. That's how I experienced it. It was. I was living in Sydney and Brisbane in that year. And the marches that we all went on in our thousands were covered very positively. And the triumphalism was basically on the back foot, I felt. Yeah, I, I think 1988 was a massive... Um, the 67 was a referendum. You were talking before yeah. about yeah. Um, being allowed to vote or being classed as a mm-hmm. citizen and certainly mm-hmm. being given the right to vote state and federal. That was 67. So that was massive. But 88 was it on a, on a, on a really sort of multimedia scale. Because yeah. by then, we'd, you know, we'd all become quite media savvy to some degree and there was mm-hmm. you know, TV and um, we weren't sort of... Yeah, we weren't kept in the loop by then. There was a lot of very good journalists... And they knew that, yeah, it was a celebration of uh, bicentenary settlement, but at what cost? And there was the other side that was finally being spoken and Aboriginal groups with non-Aboriginal groups started to formulate um, relationships and Sydney particularly because they were the first colonised, the Eura, um, first to resist the Eura um, and then up through that east coast. A little bit here, a little bit here, but certainly what was coming from Sydney. And that put for the first time, maybe not on the global scale, 
but it certainly was on the national. No, nationally, well, 90, I remember Invasion Day, which is called Australia Day here, January the 26th, marching that day, and it was extraordinary. There yeah. was just a different feeling everywhere. Yeah, and from 88, you know, we've had all that. We've had the reconciliation movement um, from self-determination to reconciliation. Um, we've also had Mabo. Uh, native title. Um, so this, uh, could you just very sorry. quickly, so there's a long-standing British legal dictum that denied Indigenous people in Australia some of the rights that Indigenous people in, say, Aotearoa, New Zealand had. Mm -hmm. And it was that this was terra nullius, so empty land. And Aboriginal people and some of their white allies won a very important case in the High Court here, which is like the Supreme Court in the early 90s, based on this gentleman, Eddie Marbo and others, about native title, acknowledging Aboriginal people's semiotic and one might say industrial, certainly agricultural cultivation and use of land and creation of symbols against the notion that these people were itinerant, they didn't do or make anything, therefore they had no claim on land. And didn't have governance, and which was and, completely and, and, and thrown out. And didn't out. have governance. And yeah. Yeah, they also had these legal systems that you were mentioning earlier. And all of that happened from 88 through to the 90s. Right, the, right. The, the march was around the 2000 Olympics from memory. Was it? I don't yeah. I, I was out of the country. Yeah, so it's all of that. And that was mm. when it became quite global. Mm -hmm. um, so I do pay a lot of credit to the, um, the 88. And from that over here, the big thing was to some degree – the Pinjarra massacre started to get a lot more. There was a massacre in Pinjarra, which is uh, about 100 kilometres south of uh, Perth. It's a, a small town that had a massive Aboriginal population. And at the time, people like Stirling, first governor of Western Australia, uh, Septimus Rowe, one of our most um, popular, um, I think, conveyors and, 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 and engineers, and then certainly uh, Peel, who came from England and had a lot of land given to him down in that area, um, the, the Peel River. Yeah, and Peel, a campus, which we're trying to change oh, really? for this reason. He was responsible for quite a lot of um, heinous uh, treatment against the local Binjarab mob, and they were a very fiery mob. They still are, and they didn't take that kindly, so they resisted and resisted quite um, severely by coming up and stealing flour from the mill here, really running a mark through Wajak country into their own country and upsetting Peel in his... Um, land and horses mm. and cattle and whatnot. So colonists being colonists, obviously, um, asked for it to stop. It didn't. And uh, they, they marched down there as a, as a, a force um, and uh, they killed women and children mainly. Um, we don't know how many. Um, the men were on a, a, an initiation or certainly on a, a trip over the hills and um, there was only old men left, boys and uh, women and children. So they opened fire across the, um, the river the Murray River in Pinjarra, um, and just buried them in unmarked graves again. Um, so that started to come to the fore. You know, people, local Noongar started to say, 88, you know, that, that sort of, once somebody yeah. says something, it's time to speak up, and that's what really happened. And uh, and then from there, watch them up, because then, you know, that was basically the Binjarra were the last sort of resistance to Noongar occupation. They were the last. And once that massacre happened, Sterling basically told them that if you, because Jagan had been killed, he said, you might want to say who Jagan is, but Jagan was a, um, a very uh, popular and certainly um, iconic resistance fighter in Noongar, mm -hmm. um, and his father was Mijaguru, the only man who was ever, or only person who was ever been shot by a firing squad on Australian soil. And that's Jagan's father, who's buried at the deanery at St George's Terrace, and then Jagan had his head cut off. And it was sent back to Liverpool, I believe, to be researched. 
and we only just got that back a few years ago. So all of this stuff started to come from 88 on you know, our history being WA, Noongar, Perth yeah. history, and Wajamak came into it because once Binjarab were told, if you do this again, we will wipe you out from this end of the Darling Range to the next, they did do as they were told. Um, and the last thing that um, the colonists um, and, and, and the governor and, and the, the police, if you like, um, said is, well, let's really now put our foot down on this particular country and let's send them anyone that just does anything wrong. If you're Aboriginal, you're going to watch them up. So it was like um, Alcatraz, yeah. you know, sort of uh, some people say Auschwitz, but that's obviously a massive statement. But more of the context of, of if you were just herded up, chained up, and sent to this island with not overly being expected to come back or certainly not come back the same person. Else, which is obviously something that's horrific with the um, mass extinction of Jews. Um, but it, to the Noongar tribe at the time in the state, it felt like genocide. Mm. You know, it felt like it was a, um, a cleansing, if you like, mm. a cultural cleansing of um, men, which then affected for generations, intergenerational trauma. To now, so these are taking some of the things law, I do look on. Taking away law, law, language, um, authority, men's business. Yeah. Women had to then step up, and they didn't know the men's business because they're not supposed to. Yeah. Um, you know, they have women's business. Um, you know, there, there is still conflict between um, Wajalas, non-Aboriginal people, and uh, Binjarab Nungars, and authority, police in Pinjara because of that very reason. Mm. That's one hundred and thirty years ago. Yeah. Can you see that this stuff still exists? Mm. So reconciliation is something we're all trying to work towards, but there's still a, a history mm. that's mm. relevant and still in, intergenerationally known because mm. mm. of the oral history of Aboriginal people and it's now in the record books and filmmakers like myself bring it up. Why do we bring it up? Well, we have to. It's history. Mm. You know, you need to know about history to move forward. And that's what I basically do. Is I did a documentary called... Um, Wajamak Black Prison White Playground and showed the cosmological link between Noongars and the island or the place um, and then the horrific hundred years of um, incarceration and the deaths in custody. It's the largest deaths in custody site in Australia. Then the unmarked graves and then the use of it as a tourist mecca but the cover-up or the quasi-cover-up as some call it and then going forward now which has changed. Mm. The landscape's changed in Australia after the apology, another significant event in 2013 by the Prime Minister to the stolen generations, but we, or I took it as an apology across all mm. Aboriginal um, peoples. And um, there is now, as you're right, there is now a museum there that contains a lot of information. There is now um, markings there, not in so much in the grave site, but they're starting to build it so that it becomes a prominent place. The only problem at the moment is the quad, an old English term for jail, um, is there still in its physical capacity. It's now changed, though, because it's a resort. So people sleep and pay quite exorbitant amounts of money unknowingly, mostly, unless they go outside of that establishment, that they're sleeping in the quadrangle or the quad prison cells, which were about two by three metres, and now they're nine by 12, but up to 15, 20 men in a two by three, no, no sanitation, um, measles, influenza, you, could you imagine it? The, you know, and they sleep in those same, same rooms. That people died, screamed, shat, pissed, you know, their last moments of breath in those rooms, and it's a holiday place. 
So our ambition and my ambition through my PhD, mm. through the film, through just my activism, if you like, my academic activism, is to try and get that quad shut down. They do what they do business-wise. I don't care whether they compensate it or whether they move somewhere else, but the quad is annexed and becomes a place of interpretation and history. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That is an extraordinary story. I mean, it is interesting the way in which so many prisons are repurposed all over the world. Fremantle Prison here is a different kind in that it becomes a prison museum that at least acknowledges what it was and the horrors that went on there. It does it quite well. Some call it ghost touring. That's that's another debate. But what it does, it does set up quite well the conditions it doesn't deny that. Doesn't deny. It shows the Noongar side yeah. and the Aboriginal side. Yeah. There's two two uh, grounds that have a, a both a Noongar painting outside and a one Jinia, um, which is up in the Kimberley. Uh, it shows what it was like for, for convicts and colonists and um, Aboriginal people who were more likely to end up at Wajamut. But once Wajamut was closed down, then Fremantle became the the maximum security mm, prison yeah. right up to 1990. And Fremantle Prison is the only uh, world um, heritage listed place in Western Australia. You know, in, in Britain... Watch up should be the it, second. In Britain, there are quite a lot of... There's actually a company that does this as a chain, pardon the use of the term, a series of really magnificent old prisons. In the same way, Fremantle Prison is a magnificent-looking building in yeah. lots of ways, not to deny for a second its, its horrendous past. Um, these places are set up as luxurious hotel resorts to go and stay in. Okay. But, it, and they, but they fetishise it. They don't deny it. They fetishise it. So you're taken to your room, which, of course, is where the staff lived and has been yeah, fully okay. renovated. But to get to your room to walk around the area, you see these little spaces where there were not as many people as you've described. There might be one or two. But it's still cramped quarters and awful. You look at it and you think, gosh, that's awful. Can I go back and watch my cable TV now, please? I, yeah, well, that. I think one of the uh, people I interviewed was the um, former head of Southwest Aboriginal Land and Sea Council, and I remember his comment, and he was just aghast. Mm. How can people, when they do know, because they do deny it, it's mm. very. It's not. It's not hidden. But you've got to scrape a yeah, lot yeah, of dirt yeah, off the yeah. ground to find out what's going on in that quad in that resort now. Um, but he says, if they know, if these people do know, naivety is fine. And then afterwards, you say, oh, sorry. But if you do know, and you still decide to stay there, it, there may be that might be a little, um, I, I suppose, a mirror effect on what that person's about. That's so very macabre. And I, and I would, could never stay. It'd be like sleeping on top of a. Uh, a cemetery and we all sort of learn to respect cemeteries regardless of who they are or what they are and to really sort of at night time leave the dead in peace well there's no difference you're sleeping where people died and uh, where the quarters were um, at the time um, uh, that's all been sort of turned into rooms as well but more so what became was the hospital what became the morgue and we're talking, you know, 130 bodies at one particular time um, with sawdust and, and, and ash to keep them from decomposing too quickly is now where the people who work at that quad actually do their meals. That's where the service people sort of, 
Yeah, and that's now the hospital area, and then it moves out just behind it where it is now the, um, I suppose, quarantined now um, from Rottnest Island Authority, the burial ground. But my point is that it's almost like they've got the burial ground in mind, and they've done all the bad deeds with tent land, but they've still got this morgue building that nobody knows what to do with, and it's being sort of used currently, but that's where there would have been some horrific scenes and then the quad is still a resort so i think they got it backwards they might have they should have shut down and moved across um given that the men are still buried there they're not going to be repatriated they're just going to be left in peace hopefully in a a nice significant place of uh of sort of healing and um memorial but they're forgetting where it all started which was the quad which four thousand men stayed in and in the film how do you get across the experience of today, yesterday, and way back in the past. Well, in Noongar, we call that uh, Kuri Yee Buddha. means yesterday, today, tomorrow. And it's just a significant place of where I put myself as a, as a cultural man. And academically, that's how I sort of, I, I call it memoryscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my films, I, I get people, given that there's nobody alive from that time, to go and put the viewers or put whoever's watching it into the, the, the thoughts and the feelings of um, of those Aboriginal men. And then the best thing, obviously, from a filmic point of view is we can use reenactments, and I try and yeah. do the best reenactments I can um, and highlight you know my craft in, in that respect. So I blend the two between the drama and the documentary, docu- docudrama, and memoryscape and, and tell people I want you to be as honest as you can and as personal as you can, particularly culturally. Because if this is your ancestor, then how do you think they would have felt? And I've had quite mm. a few, not so much breakdown, but they're very, very emotional mm. um, because they then start to think of what their ancestor, you know, their great-grandfather or their grandfather or great-great-grandfather went through and that puts them in an uncomfortable position. But that's the key. So that's what I do. So I tell them right here and now as we're shooting, this is about your great-grandfather. This is your opinion. But I want, and that's what, and, and then it's like, why? They ask me, why do I do that? And it's because I say, I want to, as you should, want to leave a legacy to our kids so that this never happens again. Mm-hmm. So it's about today, mm-hmm. but what happened yesterday so that we can go forward tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's what I sort of do. That's, that's really my whole ideology or theme or thematic academic structure is memoryscape and trying to, to say to people, in, um, and I think the Prime Minister, uh, former Prime Minister, called us mob. And I'm proud to be called this, the black arm band of history, because mm-hmm. he didn't like us taking history and showing the other side. Yeah, this this is a, I don't fully understand it because I wasn't around at the time, but this is a revisionist brand of right-wing Australian historiography that was supported by a former Prime Minister, John Howard, and there are a number of lapsed Marxists, uh, Keith Winshuttle is one of these people, where very distinguished historians like Henry Reynolds, who I think discovered late yep. in life that he was indigenous, right? I think he didn't know growing up. But a brilliant writer. A, a great writer. Yeah. And without knowing he was indigenous, yeah. had written these remarkable different histories of Australia with a lot of stuff war, about Aboriginal work war. and so on. Yeah. Quite a remarkable figure um, whose wife was a senator too, actually. And his work, which is read all over the world and admired as indigenous history, was columnified by these rank amateur, right-wing amateurs. Yeah, really appalling. We're the black armband of history, and I'd rather have a black armband <laughs> than a white blindfold. 
So that's well, what I basically well, say. And that's really what yeah. you're... I'm not, I'm not here to whitewash. History is history. Yeah. And I think the only way is to, to, to get it, to deconstruct it. It's another thing I do as an Aboriginal academic is deconstruct quite a lot of what is given. Yeah. And I try and show the other Take side. Yeah. Now, every time I come to Australia, Glenn, which is about twice a year now, having not been here for a long time, it seems as though there is erupting in front of me yet another controversy about state, military police, media, carceral, indigenous relations. Is this happening all the time? And is it, and it's always happened throughout the history of this country. Is it coming to light now because the media in part have an interest in this and because there are indigenous academics like yourself who are in some positions of authority, just as there are indigenous attorneys and judges that the silencing and the lack of professional status accorded to Indigenous people that was true really until 20 years ago is yep. being eroded. Is that part of the reason why we hear yep. about something that's been happening for 200 years? Yep. As I said before, from 1988, the, 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 the shift was there. The mm. cultural paradigm mm. shifted and um, mm. it's just continued. So I'm proud because I saw it in 88 as a, as a, young, a young teenager and then I was educated at university and then, you know, did what I just explained. And I feel like, you know, um, resistance can be in many forms and mine mm -hmm. are through films. And we are now social media savvy and so are a lot of the young Indigenous mob. But also mm -hmm. their, their age group, you know, the Generation Ys and maybe some, the I generation, they are a lot more accepting of everybody and everything. Mm -hmm. And they band together and they will sort of look at something and say, that's not right. And it's great that I've sort of done mm. my job in a way by, by telling these students that I'm teaching who are Generation Y mm. and younger, don't just take everything on face value. Go and have a look at the other side, you know, the, 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 mm. the, the, the left, mm. if you like, of the right or the up of the down or the black of the white and go and have a look and then make your own mind up. And a lot of them are doing that, doing it mm. quite quickly because they have access now to all of this discourse through yeah. social media and through internet and whatnot. Um, and so a lot of people are not taking they're not, they're not happy with the status quo. Mm. They're not taking on what the government, you know. I mean, we, you would never have uh, Watergate these days. It would never happen. You mm. know, there's still cover-ups, but it would have been a lot quicker. Mm. Um, and it happens here. As soon as something hits, and you must have just seen this mm. in the Northern Territory, it hits and it hits quick. And uh, it hits to the point where it goes right to the top with the Prime Minister's office now. So it can't be covered up anymore. This is, uh, Glenn is referring to these appalling pictures that really did look like Abu Ghraib. Yeah. Of teenage indigenous I mean children yep. uh, being well, worse than Abu Ghraib in certain ways blindfolded, tied up in sacks beaten, tortured really extraordinary and again it was <laughs> metaphorically chained but really yeah, physically yes. almost. And there's that there's, word there's again. scenes. There's scenes in my film where mm -hmm. we have you know quite often the yeah. characters chained, yeah. and yeah. one of them we put a black bag yeah, over his head and we hang him, yeah. which didn't look any different from what you saw in from the what we territory. Saw. So this stuff yeah. is 2016. So it's absolutely yeah. abhorrent that it's happening now. Mm. But um, that's again why we need to make sure we say, well, why are these youths um, resisting police? Yeah. Because there's a cultural distrust. Particularly, yeah. say in areas like Northern Territory, yeah. who or Kimberley, who you know the frontier, the pastoralists, where there are a lot of Aboriginal people. By contrast, with the situation in other parts of the country, well, we so were, they're more threatening. Yeah, and we were heavily colonised. So, so yeah. Sydney was heavily colonised, yeah. Melbourne was heavily colonised, Adelaide to some degree, and Perth, you know, southwest. Mm. So it's taken us, you know, two hundred years. 
but mm. that colonisation is now being better understood. But these places, say in the Pilbara and the Kimberley and the Northern Territory, maybe in the high ends of Queensland, yeah. there's no, they're still a hundred years behind. It's still a project of colonisation. Thank you. That so is resistance is still yeah. there, and they yeah. don't understand as much. And they're resisting, yeah. and they're resisting in their own way. And obviously, yeah. it's causing a whole lot of issues. And the elders don't know what to do because the elders say, "Well, I respect the fact that they don't like authority, and there's a schism." And yeah. how do they fix it? By chaining these kids in a way, and that's not. And then the good thing is, at least it got shown, and a lot of people, there's very little that were in support of it. We're just, no, this is not on, including it's the Prime not. Minister. And that's in, it's interesting too in that I think it was a guard who took this footage and shared it. Yeah, yeah. And again, even back in the, uh, and I showed that in the film in a way, I had the good cop, yes. bad cop yes, because not everybody is heinous and some yeah. people get put under duress and we have to understand the conditioning of human beings. Sure. So this person just said, I don't like this, well, this is my job, but I don't like this, and he shot it, and then it becomes exposed. White people have, we all have to decolonise ourselves, and white people have to work with their own sense of supremacy, which they, they need to confront in order to get over. Syed's orientalism? Yes, Still exactly. happens, but Still at happens. least we now know yeah. of it. That's yeah. the best thing is yes. once students it's become exposed to It's easy to give to a name. It's like sexual harassment. Yep. Once there's a name and a concept, then you can start to explain your circumstances. So we haven't got much time left, but I wanted yep. to ask you about future projects. I, yep. I know about one or two of them, but I want you to tell us where you're headed. The ambition straight away is to obviously um, it, it, watch them up, Black Pizza and White Playground won Best Documentary at uh, I think the 2013 West Australian Screen Awards. I now need to get it on television. So I'm negotiating that. It just takes a bit of time and bureaucracy. I've already moved on to other projects producing um, young filmmakers, trying to give back, if you like. And what it is is I am working towards something for myself as well. I'm still going to stay with Doco, but at the moment I'm working into drama. And the reason why, it's a challenge. And uh, I like creating, but also mm. having that subtext there. Mm. So I'm, I'm looking at a project called, um, it was originally called Dreamtime, but the Aboriginal female uh, contingent didn't like that name, that whole dream time name, which I said to him, well, it is a white fella concept. Yeah. And yeah. we have our own, you know, Kura Kura Knitting in Noongar. It means dream time a long, long time ago when everything was created. But it didn't sort of go across that demograph. So I said to um, the producers who are based in Melbourne and myself here, I said, well, what about the third space? Which again is an academic term that I know of because it's mm. sort of the two circles intersecting and in the middle between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, and Aboriginal being the smaller one, the bigger paradigm being mm. the non-Aboriginal, but it intersects, particularly now. Mm. It's a third mm. space mm. where anything can happen, mm. where any dreaming can go on, both white fella dreaming and black fella dreaming, because we're all in this together now. Mm. So I'm looking at a uh, drama series based on um, uh, an Aboriginal twilight zone, and it's it's got subtext, though. So it has characters that are fictional but all based on things that have, you know, have happened and mm. just conceptual things that are more Aboriginal, uh, shapeshifters, mm. um, things looking at uh, you know, the, the, the connection we all have with the sky, uh, the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing. So I'm 43 and heading into something that's a bit intriguing and different. But also, yeah, a doco will come up. I'm thinking of walking the Bibbulmun track next year mm -hmm. and the Bibbulmun track for your um, listeners is about a 1,000 
kilometres. Um, with a different variety of snake for every 100 metres. Oh, thank you. No, I'm not worried about the snakes. I'm worried about the snakes. I'm worried about the humans. <laughs> but it's basically... I didn't say the, hum- I didn't say the snakes weren't human. I'm, I'm going to walk <laughs> it where my ancestors would have walked from Minnan country in Albany uh-huh. to Perth in Wajak country back mm-hmm. in the day, and I'm going to look at it from uh, me going back to my cultural roots, mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to see if I can get some form of um, kids at risk. Mm. See if I can form, you know, getting them onto country for a couple of days nice. because it's a yeah. six-week, eight-week journey. So it's also me in an existential way with my midlife mm. crisis and looking at who <laughs> I am and filming it and doing something that's a little different, which is a reflexive, um, participatory, performative doco. Mm. Um, so that'll be next year um, on my forced long service leave, given that I've been here 22 years and haven't had one yet. And we're looking at also a series called The Frontier, and it looks at Noongar at this stage, or Aboriginal family before colonisation, right. and uh, a colonist family or, or yeah, coming, and we learn them, we learn the Aboriginal yeah. family, and they get together in the end of Series 1. Series 2 is the beginning of relationships, then the conflict, and then we'll move into wow. Series 3. And I want it to be raw mm-hmm. and real and, you know, very much what Roots did to me back right. when I watched it as a kid and it's just been remade now. Indeed. And I remember watching Roots as a kid and was absolutely spellbound by the, the horror but and the humanity but also, you know, the, the hope. Sure, and I think that is really the strong message I get from our conversation today, Glenn Stashwick. Thank you so much. I mean, every time I chat to you and when I look at, the films you've made, I'm inspired. And I think people who listen to this will feel the same way. Thank you.